Daniel Whiteson. We're going to talk about some topics related to time travel, which to me is one of the most exciting things ever. Um, just a little bit about you. You are a professor of physics and astronomy at the University of California in Irvine. You are co-author of the book, uh, We Have No Idea, A Guide to the Unknown Universe with your colleague, Jorge Cham. That's about everything in the universe that we don't know, which is a lot, right? <laughs> more, much more stuff in the universe that we don't know than that we do know. So yeah, that book was a lot of fun. Also, I tried to download, you, you and your team created an app called the Cosmic Rays found in smartphones. Is it is it Cray, Cray, uh, FIS, F-I-S is yeah. the acronym app. Yeah. And uh, is it, it's not out yet, correct? Because I tried to, to get it to, to, you know, mess around with it a little bit. But um, is it still in the, in the testing phase? It's in beta. That, that's right. So it's out, but only to a sort of a select uh, few volunteers who are helping us uh, get feedback and uh, test it and make sure it's robust. It's a tricky thing because it collects data basically in your bedroom at night using the camera. So we didn't want to release it widely until we were pretty sure we had um, it under wraps. And, you know, we're a small team doing it on a volunteer basis. So it's a, it's a bit slow going. Yeah. But Jorge and I also have other projects. Um, we have a podcast called Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, oh, where we cool. talk about all the fun questions in science. And we just launched a TV show on PBS. Congratulations. Um, and that, that's a physics-related physics show about different uh, yeah. mysteries of the universe kind of, kind of I'd thing? I'd love to do that. This one is aimed actually at three- to five-year-olds, and so it's much more general, just like scientific thinking and curiosity and how to explore your world and answer your own questions using basic science. Uh, it's an animated show. It features a, a little bunny rabbit, and it's called Eleanor Wonders Why. Oh, very cool. Very cool. And when yeah. is that? When can people check that out? It's. It came out on PBS September 7th. So oh. it's out just a few weeks. So you can find it on Amazon Prime or PBS Kids app or just go to pbskids.org slash Eleanor. Very Eleanor cool. is a curious bunny. She's the main character. <laughs> Very cool. That sounds awesome. Um, just get to get back to the app. Um, I'm just curious, uh, what is that? What are you measuring with that? What is, um, what are the rays that you're, that you're looking at and analyzing and, and trying to detect with that? Sure. Great question. Well, this starts because there's a really interesting mystery in physics, which is why are there really high energy particles hitting the earth? Like we know that high energy particles are created by the sun. It's called the solar wind. It's radiation. And those are pretty high energy, but we find that there are even higher energy particles coming from deep space, coming from somewhere we don't know. And these energy and these particles have so much energy that nobody in astrophysics can explain it. Like if you go and ask an astrophysicist, what's the highest energy particle you should find anywhere in the universe, right? Take a supernova, swing around a black hole, whatever, they give you a number. But then we go and we measure these particles and we find particles that are like a thousand or a million times more energetic than any particle should be. And so these are fascinating. We don't know what's making them or who's making them. And one issue is that we don't see them directly. They hit the upper atmosphere. They're like little meteorites. They hit the upper atmosphere and they create a big shower of particles. One particle with a lot of energy turns into two particles with half as much energy, turns into like a million particles or a billion particles on the ground, each with a smaller amount of energy. Hmm. And so what we're trying to do is capture those particles. So for example, um, you might get a muon or an electron or some particle near the surface 
Um, and your phone has a camera in it, of course, and that camera is basically a particle detector. And so if one of these energetic particles passes through your phone and hits the sensor while the camera is blocked, so you cover your camera, you would get a black picture, but if a particle which can pass through you know, your finger or black tape or whatever hits the sensor, it can deposit a little bit of energy. So if your phone is in one of these big showers of particles, you'll see a little white blip where the phone, when the phone was covered, where it should otherwise be black. So what we're looking for is a bunch of phones nearby, each of which getting a little white blip in them. And that would tell us, oh, there was a shower here. Hmm. And ultimately, what would that mean? Is that dangerous for us? What is that? What happens if there's a particle shower? And also, is that something like when someone takes a photograph and there's like an orb and they think it's a spirit or something? Is it something like, <laughs> like that? Or is that something totally unrelated? That's something totally unrelated, okay. but awesome. Um, what does it mean? It's basically just another way to look out into space. So yeah, there is radiation that's coming from space and some of it hits the surface of the earth, but not very much. Um, it's much more dangerous to like eat a banana, which is emitting positrons. <laughs> um, but we're interested because we want to know where are these things coming from? The best way to figure out like what's making them is just to find out where they're coming from. Mm. And so to do that, we just want to see like as many of them as we can and figure out where in the sky they came from. And so there are already observatories that are built, one in Utah and one in South America that are looking for these things. But, you know, they don't cover all of the Earth. They cover a little bit of the Earth. And so they miss most of them. So we thought, is there a way to sort of blanket the Earth with cheap devices that could capture these showers and, you know, cell phones, there are billions of them and there are millions of them turned on every day. So we thought if we could repurpose that, maybe we could build a planet sized detector and that would tell us maybe where these rays are coming from. Like if they're all coming from the same point in the sky, then you know where to look for the source. If they're coming from everywhere, then you also know something more about what might be generating them. But they're so rare, we've only ever seen a handful of them. And yeah, no, no idea where they be sent from. It's total, total mystery. It's a mystery. People thought for a while maybe they were being generated by massive black holes in the centers of galaxies, and so they looked for a correlation. Like, are, do they typically come from those kinds of directions? But they didn't find one, and so it's still currently a mystery. Which is awesome because it means that there's something out there that we don't know about. Something, and not just a little like new weird kind of star, but something crazy energetic. Or, you know, hey, it could be like uh, alien particle physicists building a huge collider and shooting particles at us. They're sending us messages. Who knows, right? Um, it's just, it's a fun mystery. Every time you look out into space, you see something new that we didn't understand. And that tells you there's an opportunity to learn something new about the universe, which is what gets me excited. I um, We're going to talk about time travel, but I just wanted to ask you quickly, um, what what do you make of the uh, discovery of, uh, is it phosphine on Venus in the clouds? That seems yeah. very exciting, and I don't know enough about what that chemical actually is or and why it's so yeah. exciting, but it just from what I've read, it, it's, it's uh, super fascinating. It's very exciting. It's exciting because phosphine is the kind of thing that you only see in connection with life on Earth. And it's difficult to make in any other way that we know of. And that's absolutely the key qualifier. We can't think of a way to make phosphine on Venus without it being life. That doesn't mean it's life. It means that there's some way to make phosphine on Venus that's either life or some new weird chemistry we never thought about before. So it could be like 
wow, Venus has weird stuff going on in its volcanoes and it makes phosphine there, even though that never happens here on Earth. Hmm. Or it could mean, yeah, there's microbial life on Venus. The fascinating thing is we don't even understand how phosphine is made on Earth. Like we know it's connected to life, but if you ask microbiologists, and my wife is one, they don't know how life makes phosphine. Like, you know, there's a bunch of chemical steps you need to go through to take the phosphorus and the hydrogen and put them together, whatever. They don't know how that works. And so, yes, it's a good biomarker. We see it in connection with life. It's not really a total smoking gun that there is life. But, hey, mm. always exciting to see something new in the atmosphere of another planet. Always exciting. Yeah, from what I understand, there was different um, scientists that tried to run, like, models, different uh, formulas to see if it, what else it could be or if there's another way it could be created and they were unable to to do that. Is that is yeah, that accurate? That's right. Uh, one of my favorite ideas, though, is that, you know, um, microbes from Earth are really hard to kill. Like, you send something out into space, it's got Earth bugs on it. Um, and no matter what you do, there's going to be Earth bugs on it. And now we have sent things to Venus. We have sent landers to Venus in the 70s and 80s. Mm. So, yeah, there could be microbes in, there could be microbes living in the clouds of Venus, but who knows if they are indigenous to Venus ah. or if they hitched a ride along on those Soviet <laughs> landers, surviving all the sterilization and the trip through space and basically infected Venus with Earth microbes. Oh, we wow. don't know. That's, that's trippy to think about. I never, I never <laughs> thought about that. Um, and imagine, for example, we go to Venus and we find these microbes and they look just like Earth microbes. Then we don't know if, A, these came from Earth and were infected, or B, this is the only way to make life and it came independently to look just like Earth life on Venus. Wow, that would be a fascinating question to be asking, huh? Yeah, I um I I know we're going to talk about time travel but this is so fascinating. I have to just follow up with do they sterilize they must sterilize these vessels, right? But is it Oh, they try. There's a there's a margin bacteria or whatever uh microbial organisms survive that and and they will they will um it sort of infest the, the vessel. It's almost impossible to completely sterilize anything because bacteria have a very short life cycle and incredible variety. So if you have a community of billions of bacteria, one of them is gonna have um, you know, some protection against what you're trying to do to kill it. If it's radiation, well, some bacteria can survive radiation. Is it heat? Some of them love heat. Is it cold? Some of them can be frozen. Uh, they even found at JPL that they were, they were using this bleach spray to sterilize. They're like, oh, well, bleach kills everything, right? <laughs> and so they sprayed it all over this satellite, and then they discovered it was covered in bugs that had learned to eat bleach. Oh, no. <laughs> and so like, they were like gobbling up the poison, right? Wow. So the lesson is like, you can never fully sterilize basically anything. And so it doesn't mean that there were bugs on that thing that they survived, but it means it's not a ridiculous idea that Earth bugs could have landed in the clouds of Venus along by hitching a ride on these landers. Wow. So if it was a planet that we had never visited, that possibility, obviously, well, unless maybe another civilization did, but yeah, then now you're just right. getting crazy. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, a- we've thought about this kind of thing before because when Cassini visited Jupiter or so Saturn, you know, it orbited for a while, it took pictures, but some of those moons of Saturn are an excellent place to look for life 
and they really wanted to avoid the scenario where Cassini ended up like crashing onto one of those moons mm -hmm. and infecting it. So they purposely crashed it into Saturn uh, to avoid it infecting the moons. So it's something that we try to be careful about, but you can't be infinitely careful. Hmm. All right. Time travel. Uh, it's such <laughs> a big topic. Uh, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with the idea of time travel because of Back to the Future. I was obsessed with the movie yeah. Back to the Future, um, like many kids in my generation were. And I would make like fake equations and pretend to be like a scientist, like I was developing some <laughs> breakthrough in, in time travel. And of course, I was, you know, just playing and, and you know, having fantasies. But it, it was just something that was so fascinated, uh, fascinating to me. And then when I got a little bit older, I read H.G. Uh, Wells' The Time Machine. It kind of mm -hmm. like reinvigorated my interest in, in time travel. And um, now people are, is it Professor uh, Mallet, who's in, um, is it Ron Mallet? I have it written down. He, um, there's people that are really studying this. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just want to pose the question to you. Is this a real possibility? Is this a fantasy? Um, where, does, where do we stand as a civilization on this topic? <laughs> well, time travel is a tricky, tricky topic. Um, I would say there's two answers to that. The way time travel is depicted in fiction is totally impossible and inconsistent, right? Uh, the key thing is that the universe follows rules, and so you got to follow those rules. So if you can find a way to make time travel work and follow those rules, great. Uh, the way it's depicted in Back to the Future, for example, really makes no sense. Um, it's fun. It's a, it makes for a fun story, but the, you know, the rules don't really hold together. And that's okay for a movie, <clears throat> but in reality, you have to actually follow the rules. And we can dig into exactly how Back to the Future breaks those rules if you like. But there are ways to achieve what we would consider time travel and follow the laws of physics, but they're different from how it's envisioned in most fiction. I was watching one of your videos. Um, so it's the physics of time are the same going forward as they are going in reverse. So can you explain? Yeah. So if I, you know, we're having this podcast and then if I watch it, in reverse, the physics of this interaction is are, is the same. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around it. Could you explain and brought like broaden sure. that out a little bit, please? The idea is that lots of the laws of physics uh, would work the same way if you went backwards in time. You know, for example, if you um, have a ball and you and you're in a situation where there's no friction nor air resistance, and you drop it, the ball falls and it comes back up to your hand. Right. And the laws of physics describe that. Cool. Now, what if you play that video backwards? Mm -hmm. The question is, do the laws of physics also describe the backwards video? And the answer is yes. Most of the laws of physics would work just as well if time flowed backwards as if time flows forwards. That's what it means. And so it doesn't mean that like uh, time, it doesn't mean that the, that your the podcast would make sense backwards, but it might be also following the laws of physics if it went backwards. It's not like it would be understandable in English, right? Yeah. Um, but it w you wouldn't be breaking the laws of physics. The, the backwards played video would still be following the laws of physics. Does that give any hope that traveling backwards is a possibility? Because it actually, just ends up... Yeah, actually, it gives me, um, it gives me hope. 
it's actually one of the most exciting ways, in my opinion, that we could make time travel actually work. And the idea is, and take a bunch of big steps here, mm -hmm. that we don't know why time goes forwards and not backwards, right? Time seems to, it seems from a, our point of view in the equations of the universe that time could go backwards, like the equations work that way. Why do they go forward? We don't know. It's one of these big mysteries of physics. Like anytime there's something asymmetric where something is one way and it could have been the other way, then we want to know why. So time goes forwards, but it might be that if we learned why time goes forwards, it would give us a handle on it. It would give us like the ability to make it go forward. We might be able to manipulate that mechanism so that it goes backwards. Would it be good to have time goes backwards? Well, it depends on what you want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Say, for example, what you want to do is you've knocked over your coffee and you're bummed about it and you'd like to go back and unknock over your coffee. Well, if you could rewind the whole universe, right, make time go backwards, then you could undo that and then your coffee would be unspilled. Is it one of the signatures of time moving forward uh, entropy, which is things get more chaotic as they, they continue on? Yeah, exactly. Most of the laws of physics are totally symmetric with respect to time, right? Like they work the same way forward and backward. But remember earlier I said, when I talked about the ball dropping example, I've said, let's ignore friction and air resistance. That's because there is one or two places in physics where it does prefer a certain direction and as you say the law of entropy is one of them but the law of entropy the, the second law of thermodynamics what it says is that as time flows forwards disorder increases entropy increases that's fine that just means that as the universe uh, goes on things spread out and get more crazy there's more ways to arrange things uh, you know it's easier when you drop um, milk into your coffee to see it spread out than for it to coalesce. That all makes sense. Hmm. But that doesn't actually tell you why time goes forwards. It just says, if time goes forwards, entropy goes up. You could also interpret the law the other way and say, well, if time went backwards, entropy would go down, right? So it's a connection between these two concepts, but it's not causal. You don't know that one of them makes the other one happen. And so, yeah, it might be that entropy goes up when time goes forwards, but if you could figure out the actual reason why time is going forwards and reverse it, it would just mean that entropy goes down, which, hey, that's what you want if you want to unspill your coffee. Hmm. <laughs> just trying to understand, so is that true for everything in the universe, like even us, like things get more chaotic for us as life progresses or something? Or is that too simplistic or inaccurate? Yeah, it's a great question. The answer is that as long as time goes forwards, entropy increases. And that's true for living things and for anything, um, as long as you take the full system, right? If it's a closed system, if things aren't leaking in or out. So, for example, a human being is a fairly organized thing. Um, it has, its entropy is probably decreasing, but you know, it's emitting waste and is interacting with the environment and breathing things in, and making messes everywhere. If you factor all of that in, entropy is always increasing. And so 
um, the rule is that as time goes forward, entropy increases. And that's true for a box of gas or for a person or for a solar system or for the whole universe. Hmm. And a lot of people interpret that to mean that that's why time goes forwards, that entropy is increasing, so time has to go forwards. And it's true. The law says time, uh, as time goes forwards, entropy goes up. But it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us that time has to go forwards. It just says that these two things are connected. For example, if time went backwards, entropy would have to decrease. And that would still follow the law, the second law of thermodynamics. Right? If, time, if entropy increases as time goes forwards, then it just needs to decrease when time goes backwards. So a lot of people tout this as the arrow of time in physics, but I think that's oversold. I think that um, we don't know why time goes forwards. We know that if time went backwards, entropy would have to decrease, but that's okay. And to get back to our previous, um, the previous question, when you reverse entropy, the physics are the same? Like you, you could actually, it's like, a, I believe in the video, there was like a video, like a Pong almost kind of thing, just moving chaotically. But then when you reversed it, it was the same, the same movements, but there's, there's so much going on, you can't really tell. That, yeah, that could be exactly. recorded. Yeah, exactly. And so we think that uh, if time could go backwards, then maybe entropy would decrease. But in most of the laws of physics, it's totally symmetric, except for entropy and a couple of other little areas. Mostly, if you played things backwards, you would think, oh, yeah, that is following the laws of the universe. Another way to think about it is if in most cases, if somebody showed you a video, you wouldn't be able to tell if it was going forwards or backwards, hmm. right? Because both of them would follow the rules of physics. So does that get into uh, weak force violating? So it's parity and charge parity, which I'm not really sure what either of those things mean, but perhaps you could explain them. You know, most of physics ignores time, it would work the same way forward and backwards. The one exception we talked about so far was this question of entropy. The other one is the weak nuclear force, which seems to have a weird preference for things going one direction in time. And it's a bit subtle. The weak nuclear force is this thing responsible for like beta decay, like radioactive decay. It's one of the four fundamental forces. And in the 1960s, we discovered that it was really weird, that it had a preference for, uh, for, for example, left-handed things rather than right-handed things. We, uh, if you make a, if you take your right hand and, and you make uh, three fingers, right, then you get a different arrangement than if you do the same thing with your left hand. There's no way to take your right hand and turn it into your left hand just by rotating, right? They, they really are different. So that's called a mirror symmetry, right? Um, this is trend. If you put your left hand in front of the mirror, it looks like your right hand. Um, and so people realize that we've checked whether electromagnetism and the strong force and gravity obey this symmetry, right? That the laws of physics would look the same in the mirror as they do not in the mirror. But nobody had checked whether the weak force obeyed this symmetry. And so they went and they checked and they discovered actually it doesn't, that the mirror experiment is different from the non-mirror experiment, that, that there is a preference. And the way they did this is a really subtle experiment. They got a bunch of cobalt atoms and they got them all spinning in one direction and then it's supposed to shoot out electrons. And if the weak force obeyed this symmetry, it should shoot out electrons in both directions. So that in the mirror, if you flipped it, you would be able to tell because it'd be equal in both directions. 
But what they found was it only shot out electrons in one direction, which meant that in the mirror, it would shoot them out in the other direction, which is weird. It means that the laws of physics would work differently in the mirror. Mm. And that's pretty strange. Now, how does that connect to time? Well, it connects to time because what we're talking about there is one symmetry called parity. There are two other symmetries we're interested in. One is called charge, which means do the laws of physics work the same when you replace positive charges and negative charges? Like if something can happen to an electron, can it also happen to a positron? And um, the weak force violates the combination of these two things, charge and parity. So if you flip stuff into the mirror and you change minus to plus, that's the combination of these two things. The weak force violates that one as well. It's called CP, right? charge and parity. The interesting thing is that we're pretty sure that the trifecta, charge, parity, and time together, that that's respected. That's a real symmetry of the universe. That is, if you flip stuff in the mirror and you change pluses to minus and you run it backwards in time, then everything should look the same. So we know that CP is violated, that the weak force doesn't observe CP, but we think CPT is protected. That means that time has to also be violated. So CP is violated and time is violated. That comes together to protect CPT. So it's a bit of a long-winded um, uh, explanation, but the, the upshot is that the weak force also seems to have a preference for the arrow of time. Again, that doesn't mean that it's the reason why time goes forwards and not backwards. It means that it seems to prefer one over the other. But maybe it just means if time did flow backwards, things would work a little differently. Yeah, you have a great video on YouTube people could watch that explains this and also illustrates it for people that are more visual. Um, is there a way to to test CPT? Have we tested CPT? Is it, how do you do that? And we have, and it's, it's a little subtle, but you basically do these experiments where you do the same thing and you do one um, with a charge flipped and you do one with a different arrangement. Um, and there are uh, other subtle ways. I don't, haven't read those papers recently, so I can't get much into the details, but we have checked uh, for CPT violations. I've never seen it. And if CPT was violated, it would mean really basic things about our understanding of the universe would be wrong. Like the CPT symmetry is really deeply baked into our understanding of physics, like special relativity and all this stuff relies on it. So we'd be pretty surprised if it was wrong. A lot of things we know to be, we think to be true would have to be thrown out. That means it would be an exciting discovery, yeah. but so far nobody's ever seen a violation of CPT. That that's ultimately what happened when um, C C and P were 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 sort of debunked, right? It was like it kind of rocked the whole physics world when that when that announcement was made. Yeah, it's one of these things where people just said, "Well, of course the universe is symmetric. Why would it look different in the mirror? That would be absurd, right?" But it's it's just an example of how humans are a bit parochial, right? We have these ideas about the world. We have conceptions. Uh, concepts we've built up from our intuition that we use to understand the world. And along with that intuition comes bias, comes assumptions, things that we like, things we find prettier that make sense to us. doesn't mean that they are the way things really are in the universe. And, uh, and so those are the moments when we're confronted by reality, when we discover, oh my gosh, the universe is actually quite different from what we expected. Those are the greatest moments in science. Those are the times when we've really learned something. 
And and like you say, the discovery that parity is violated, to me, it's on par with the discovery of relativity or quantum mechanics. When you discover, wow, the world is totally different from what I thought it was. That's why we're doing this, right? We're not just writing science fiction. We're out there exploring the universe to try to discover these things to figure out what the truth is. I had one more question that's kind of like a deep dive, like more esoteric for someone like myself. But um, if you put a pair of is it a pair of quarks, mm-hmm. time symmetry is broken. Is that do you know what I'm talking about, or did I not transcribe that correctly? Um, I'm just tell checking. me a little bit more. Which kind yeah, of quarks? I'm more? not sure. There was something that I was reading that if you take a pair of uh, quarks, something when they're some mm. kind of relation to them if they're together right. time symmetry right. is broken does that make sense or am i off base no i know what you're referring to so what we talked about earlier was deducing that time symmetry must be broken because cp is broken but cpt is protected but recently people have done a direct experiment to see if time symmetry itself is broken by the weak force before we were sort of like deducing it was it had to be logically but we wanted to see it directly and so they do this experiment where they have quarks that are they have uh, particles that are made out of B quarks, and the particles sort of go back and forth. It's like one state and another state, and they slosh back and forth. And what they noticed, these things should be symmetric. They should go back and forth the same way. But what they notice is that they prefer to go in one direction. And so they find this to be like a direct violation of time reversal symmetry because things prefer to go in one direction and not the other. And it's not an example of entropy, right? It's a case where... If you played the video backwards, if you could take videos of particles, if you played the video backwards, it would not follow our laws of physics anymore. And so that's something that they saw when they looked at these little pairs of quarks, one of which is a B quark, switching from one kind of particle to the other. So that's pretty cool confirmation. We already thought that time reversal symmetry was violated, but it was direct evidence that it actually was. So there's a preference for everything to move forward in time to there's is a resistance to moving backwards from yeah or say it another way you know there's a rule that says things go differently if you go forwards in time than backwards in time does that mean that time has to go forwards no it just means that if time goes forwards this is the way it happens and it happens differently if time goes backwards why does time go forwards and not backwards we still don't know the answer to that one there's a professor his name is uh ronald mallet and he is studying time travel uh, very seriously. And um, his, I, what, I mean, do you are you familiar with his theories? What do you think of his theories? No, uh, no I have not read his theories. Okay. Uh, supposedly, he believes that, gra- well, we know that gravity can affect time, right? Which is true. Yeah. Like if you have clocks in different parts of the universe or in on one in the top of the Empire State Building, maybe or at high elevations, they move slightly different. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I guess his idea is he says that he solved Einstein's gravitational field equations by a circulating beam of laser light. And uh, I'm not sure how that would work or why that would work, but this is something that he's studying. Yeah, I think it's really fun that people are thinking carefully about this and trying to figure out how to make time travel work uh, in reality. Um, And, you know, a lot of physicists say it's impossible, but there actually are some little corners of relativity that do allow it, some configurations of the universe that would allow you to travel in time. And so uh, this guy's research, um, Ronald Mallett, he's a professor at the University of Connecticut, I see, 
and he's developed a system where you have lasers in a circulating beam that would twist space and time. Um, I'm not sure if that's possible. I know that um, there was an analysis of his paper that showed that it required a singularity, uh, even when the lasers are off. Um, and so that seems quite unphysical to me. Um, but there are other ways to explore the possibility of time travel and to be consistent with general relativity. Uh, there's a couple. Um, one, my favorite, is the idea of wormholes. Wormholes are a connection between two places in space. Um, and to understand wormholes, you need to remember that space is not just like something we measure. It's not like space is blank emptiness and we are taking the rulers out to indicate where space is. Space itself is dynamical in general relativity. It's, it bends, it, it moves, it ripples, right? Space bends in response to mass and tells mass how to move. And it can do things like be connected in weird ways. Like what happens when the Earth goes around the sun is not that there's a force of gravity pulling the Earth, but that the shape of space is bent so that the connections between parts of space are such that the Earth just goes there, right? That's like what's right in front of the Earth at every moment. So you can change the connections of space and you can change it in a discontinuous way. Like this part of space can be connected to that part of space so that you can go from here to there without going through all the space between my hands, right? You can just like, it's like taking a sheet of paper and folding it so that the two spots touch each other. You can do that with space. It's totally consistent with general relativity. So that's what a wormhole is, is a connection between two, two points in space. But space and time are related. And in general relativity, you can also have wormholes that connect two points in time. So you can go in one side of the wormhole and come out the other side and be in a different time. That's something which is consistent with the laws of general relativity. That doesn't mean we know how to do it. It doesn't mean we can build one or that you can write an app to, to rewind time. It just means we don't know why it's impossible, right? Which is a big step forward, right? You go from physics says it's impossible to, well, we can't rule it out. It's just we don't know how to do it and it might be extremely expensive. To me, that's a lot of progress. So has anything, there's nothing that survived, we've never sent anything into a wormhole to see. We have never even seen a wormhole. So black oh, holes never, are a real oh, thing. Black yeah. holes are, I'm sorry, so I'm, I'm conflating uh, black holes and wormholes. These are different. These are different. Black holes are a real thing. We know they exist. They're predicted by, by general relativity and seen. Wormholes, consistent with general relativity, never been observed. We don't know if they're a real thing in the universe. Um, you know, somebody likes to say, um, if it's possible, it will happen. It might be that they're possible, but that the situation hasn't arisen yet. Uh, or it could be that the universe is filled with wormholes and we haven't found them yet. One theory is that some black holes have wormholes at their center. So if you went into the black hole, you would go to the center and then pass through the wormhole and come out the other side. We don't know if that's true. So wormholes are theoretical, never actually been seen. Um, one problem with wormholes is that the calculations suggest they should collapse almost instantly. Like you had a wormhole, connect two places in space, boom, it would disappear almost instantly. So you'd have to have some way to keep it open. And the only way we can think of to keep it open is to have some sort of anti-gravity, something which pushes them open. And so we'd need to create some kind of matter that has anti-gravity and insert that in the wormhole to keep it open. So we're, we're like 
10 steps down into crazy speculation at this point because we don't know if this kind of exotic matter with negative gravity even exists. Is but it, it's a possibility. Is anyone seriously working on that? Is that you know of? Not that I know of. I mean, but, you know, for these kinds of crazy ideas, seriously working on it means like, you know, smoking banana peels and thinking about it at night and hoping to have some inspiration and writing crazy papers. Right. Um, It's hard to do something more concrete, you know. So if theoretically, if a wormhole was created today and then we went to the year 2045 and then we went in that wormhole, we would come out today, right? Is that correct in theory? That's correct, yeah, in theory. If you know, There's a lot of caveats there. We don't know if, uh, if that actually works, but it could be possible to have wormholes with, with two ends at different times in the universe, yes. And time is occurring at different rates on different planets, right? Because well, of gravity? Yeah, time is a weird thing. I mean, we like to imagine that the universe has like one real history, one sort of like list of things that happened in the order that they happened in. And we like to imagine there's like a universal clock. You could like write down what's happening right now and then in a moment what's happening then. The truth is that there is no universal clock. Every point in time has its own clock. And so the time that you experience is different from the time that I experience. And the time you experience is different from the time that I observe you experiencing. So, for example, you go near a black hole, your time seems normal to you. Your time always seems normal to you. But if I'm looking at a clock that you're holding, I see your clock slowing down. You don't see your clock slowing down, but I measure your clock as slower than mine. So you, life is just passing like normal around a black hole. But I see you as almost frozen. And you see me... Uh, and you could see me as almost frozen. So we can have different ideas about whose uh, time is moving slowly and both be correct. Does that mean time is different for every person? Time is different for every person. And also time is different as a function of, of location and speed, right? How you measure time depends on your speed. The, we could even disagree about like the order of events. There's some scenario where you have like a race between two people. And somebody who's sitting at the finish line sees them tie. Somebody who's driving past the race at a really high speed might see one person winning. Somebody driving past the race in the other direction would see the other person winning. So they would see a different order of events, you know, like A happens before B or B happens before A. The amazing thing is that these aren't uh, mistakes they're making. It's not like, oh, well, you forgot to account for the passage of, of the speed of light or whatever. These are correct accounts which disagree and the reason is that there is no universal time like everybody can have their own story and they can disagree and they can all be correct because the universe is bonkers yeah my friends think i have my own version of time because i'm usually late to things <laughs> but if you're if you're uh like a so if you just lay on the couch or something time moves slower is that right if you're more active it moves allegedly faster right but remember it's always relative to other people so you don't have a, an absolute speed, right? Your speed is always measured relative to other people or other things. Mm. And you always observe your own time as moving normally. Other people, because of their speed relative to you, will see your time moving slowly. So yes, if you get in a spaceship and go super duper fast, then other people will see your clock going slow. You will never see your own clock going slow. And if you look back at their clock, you'll be like, no, your clock's going slow. It's craziness.
but it's also reality. So a clock on a spaceship, the, was it a measurable difference? If, if it's in different gravity, you, you, it, it, how, how severe is the difference of a clock on Earth compared to a clock in, uh, It's in pretty small, but it's measurable. I mean, if you have a really precise clock, then you can tell the difference. And for example, satellites above Earth experience time differently than we do. And for example, the global positioning system, which needs to be accurate, you know, centimeters, um, has to account for this because it's sending messages. And one of the ways it tells where it is and where you are is based on how long it took those messages to arrive to the satellite um, or to your phone. And so it has to account for, it has to make corrections for these, these time effects. So they are measurable, they are real. We've seen them, we've measured them, we've calibrated them. This is not a theoretical concept. This is something that's very real and been established. So if space is like, I, the, the example that I found was a trampoline and then a bowling ball is on top of it representing a planet and how mm -hmm. heavy it is kind of weighs down on the space, like you could see it mm -hmm. sink. That ultimately affects time, right? So something like the movie Interstellar, where if you're on a planet and one hour there is seven years here, how realistic is something like that? That's totally realistic. And in that movie, they did a great job because you notice that the time for the folks on the planet seemed normal, right? They went down, they had a normal day, they did some work, they tried to capture their spaceship, whatever. They didn't feel time going slow or anything. But when they came back up, time had run differently for them than it had for folks who stayed on the ship. And so that was very accurate. And that kind of thing could totally happen. The magnitude of the effect depends on the strength of the mass. So if you're near some really, really massive object, then time will go slower for you relative to other people. Again, for yourself, it's always going normally. You'll just live your normal life. But if you're comparing your clocks to other people's clocks, then the fact that you've been near a massive object will change your clock relative to theirs. So if we had some hyperspeed uh, spacecraft and we can go to a faraway planet and be there for a little while and come back, it would ultimately be a time machine into the future, not backwards. <laughs> yes, exactly. Time travel into the future, totally possible. Uh, exactly. It's like, you know, freezing yourself cryogenically um, also will allow you to travel into the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes I'm tempted by that. I'm like, I'd like to know what the universe will be like or the world will be like in 100 years. It, unfortunately, you can't come back, right? It's not like a, a trip that you can, it's not like tourism. You go, you check out future land and you come back. Yeah. You go and it's a one-way trip, right? I, I might be butchering this, but if you can travel faster than the speed of light, ultimately... Well, nothing travels faster than the speed of light, but if you could travel nothing at the speed of light, right, you could go back uh, or forwards in time. I'm confusing myself. Um, the math says that if you could travel faster than the speed of light, that time would go backwards. Um, but it's sort of nonsense because nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. So it's like sort of looking at a part of the math that doesn't really apply to our universe. Uh, there is a theoretical particle called a tachyon. Uh, it appears a lot in science fiction that travels faster than light. Um, we don't think it really exists. It would break a lot of rules. Um, but it's a fun idea to play with. And, you know, we think that these rules are hard and fast, but maybe one day we'll discover that they're not, that there are ways to break them. Do you, Are you optimistic of that, or do you think that that's traveling faster than the speed of light, that that someday would be possible? Or is that does that seem in, improbable? I think it's possible if you use the right loopholes. Like traveling through space is not possible faster than the speed of light. I think that's probably impossible. But think about what your goal is. If your goal is I want to get from here to some other planet and I want to do it in less than 40 years um, or four, even four years, 
then that might be possible. You could use a wormhole. Uh, you can build um, something else which changes the, the shape of space. Remember, space itself is fluid. It can change. And so instead of traveling through space at the speed of light and taking forever to get to that star, you might be able to compress space itself so that it's just not as far to get there. Mm. So I think there are ways to effectively travel faster than the speed of light without actually moving through space faster than light. But you have to sort of like think about what you actually want to accomplish. Actually going through space faster than the speed of light, I think probably impossible. Getting to distances faster than, getting to, to distant locations faster than light could have taken you there may be possible. Professor Mallet's idea of going backwards in time, just say for a second that that worked, right? And he went backwards right. in time. Now, he part of the reason why he wanted to do this, his whole idea was his father had a heart attack when he was mm. very young. And the whole premise that kind of set him off in this direction was he wanted to go back and save his father. So say hypothetically that worked. He went back in time and saved his father. And then he had no desire or burning you know, urge to make a time machine. So he never made it. And it created some kind of paradox. What would happen like if we went back and changed different elements of the past? How, would, we still, would that just create an alternate future? Would we... Yeah, I, I know it's kind of a, 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 a question it's that a, it's a hard can't question prove, but because it's um, you know, it says if you broke these basic laws of physics, what would then the laws of physics imply? Well, you know, it's hard to know because you've already broken the universe. Like going back in time in that way just seems totally impossible to me. I mean, things, the universe works in a continuous way. Things change smoothly. They don't jump, right? You can't just like, I'm here and then I'm there. I'm here and now I'm in the past. Um, it, it really just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so it's hard to imagine. And, and, and it, it, you can tell that it doesn't make sense because it leads to all sorts of impossibilities. Right. And anytime in physics you say, what would happen in this scenario? And you get a nonsense answer, it means that you've broken something. <laughs> and the universe does make sense, right? For some reason we don't understand, it does make sense. It follows rules. And so... Um, if you, it doesn't break those rules. Uh, we don't know what those rules are yet, but at least it follows them. And so if you change um, the scenario in a way that breaks the rules, then you can no longer really ask questions about what happens because you're no longer really thinking about a universe. I know that you did a, a, an interview about the movie Palm, Spr uh, Palm Springs, right? This is called, mm. uh, with yeah. Andy Samberg. Um, and part of that movie is they, I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but they, they kind of stumble into a wormhole and they're in like a time loop, like a Groundhog Day situation. Um, but you think that that could be a possibility. Is that right? If I'm understanding what you said in that article correctly? I mean, there are ways it could happen, um, but not in the way depicted by the movie, right? Um, and maybe these are little quibbles, but like the other way, earlier I was saying that there are two ways to have time travel consistent with general relativity. One is a wormhole. And in that movie, it can't be a wormhole because a wormhole has an entrance and an exit. And in the movie, they go back in time without going through a wormhole necessarily. They just fall asleep. Um, the other way is a very strange configuration of matter. Basically, an infinitely spinning cylinder of dust will create a closed time-like loop. But then again, you don't uh, get a new chance at the old day. You just live the same day over and over again. You're like stuck in a loop but it's not like you remember the previous day. You're literally just doing the same thing over and over again. It's like rewinding and replaying, 
the characters in the movie don't do something differently every time you watch the movie, right? It's the same movie over and over again. And so it would be more like that. So it's a fun idea, but I don't think what happened in Palm Springs is, uh, is physically realistic. If that were to happen, the people involved in that loop would have no idea? Yeah, just like the characters in a movie don't know that they're, the, the movie's been seen 50,000 times or a million times, right? Is it possible that we're doing that now and have no idea? I mean... <coughs> Certainly, yeah. yeah. I suppose that is possible. I never thought about that. I mean, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. You talked about the simulation, that the, the universe possibly being a simulation, and all the laws of, of the universe and how everything makes sense. It, does it seem like a program to you? Does it seem like we are in like a, a great version of The Sims? Uh, it seems like a simulation, and it doesn't. It does, in fact, in the sense that it follows rules. Like The weird thing is that the universe seems to follow some rules. Like Why does the universe have rules, and why does it follow them consistently? We don't know, but it sort of strikes me like a program, right? That's what a computer does is somebody's written code, it follows the code mindlessly. So that's the thing that makes me feel like the universe is a bit like a simulation. On the other hand, boy, is it detailed. It's like just jammed filled with details. You know, like every time a fly flaps its wings, it's interacting with billions of molecules, et cetera. And so it seems to me like a very, very difficult kind of simulation to write. But if we're in a simulation, then we're inside some other computer in another universe where the laws of physics could be different. And maybe in that universe, writing a really um, impressive simulation is not that hard. Maybe, you know, computing is cheap. Do you, th- oh, just quickly, what do you think the percentage is that we are in the base reality, in the real reality? <laughs> I have no, no way to <laughs> okay. estimate that. Somewhere between zero and 100%. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea. Good enough. <laughs> All right, Professor Whiteson, I know you have to go, but thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, but, uh... Peace out, Transmodians.